and welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast. It's the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a mass violence victim from a little bit different perspective. So far on the MVP, we've focused on mental health and some social aspects of mass violence. But today, we're going to be talking about the legal aspect of things, and in particular, protecting the legal rights of mass violence victims. Our guest today is Meg Garvin. Meg is the executive director of the National Crime Victim Law Institute, which is a nonprofit based in the Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. The nonprofit's mission is to actively promote comprehensive and enforceable legal rights for crime victims and uh, promote access to knowledgeable attorneys to help protect those rights in every case. Uh, and they do that using victim-centered legal advocacy, education, and resources. Did I get that right? And welcome, Meg. You absolutely got that right. Thank you for having me. You're uh, very welcome. You, you come extraordinarily highly recommended from people who I uh, respect and trust. And they, when I told them uh, that I was going to be doing a podcast with Meg Garvin, they literally oohed and odd and said, boy, that's going to be fantastic. So I am very excited about chatting with you today. Well, I'm grateful to be here and um, hopefully, hopefully your expectations aren't too high, um, but I'm excited to talk about this. It's really important to think about the legal side of things when we're thinking about serving victims of mass violence. So I'm glad to be here. Excellent. I couldn't, couldn't agree more. Uh, it's such a multifaceted and in some ways uh, terrible experience that understanding legal rights is a key part of it. But first, before we get into that, I was hoping that you would spend a couple of minutes uh, telling us about the National Crime Victim Law Institute. And I have to say, NCVLI is almost as bad uh, an acronym as NMVVRC. So congratulations um, <laughs> on having an equally unpronounceable acronym. But what, uh, what does the NCVLI do and, and how long has it been around? Sure. So NCBLI has been in existence since 2000. So we just passed our 20th anniversary. And we came about really as an idea, an idea um, from our founder, Professor Doug Ballou, who was a former prosecutor, worked on domestic violence, sexual assault cases predominantly, but some mass cases. And his idea as a prosecutor was, you know, a rec came from the recognition that the system, criminal legal system, really wasn't honoring individual human beings as well as perhaps he had hoped for when he became a prosecutor. And so he had this idea, what would it look like if victims had their own lawyer to just guide them through understanding their rights and then arguing for those when they needed to, but really just asserting those in the criminal case so that someone in the system was really solely focused on the survivors. So NCBLI came about from an idea in the late 90s. We were founded in 2000. And in 2002, we were awarded our first national grant to really test this idea of what does it look like, it being the criminal justice system, what does it look like when a survivor has their own lawyer protecting their rights for them? And so ever since then, we are mostly a group of lawyers at NCBLI working with other lawyers and advocates across the country 
working to protect victims' rights during criminal investigation and prosecution of perpetrators. That's such an interesting sort of founding idea because, I mean, certainly as, as a mental health person myself who works directly with victims, it's often such a shock to, to them that there is not a lawyer speaking for them in a trial or in a courtroom. Um, they, they don't have a full appreciation of how the legal system works, who the prosecutor uh, actually represents, that it's not the victim's lawyer. And I mean, that's just such an interesting idea and an interesting mission uh, that um, someone's out there actually trying to address that particular situation. Yeah, it's amazing how often we will have a conversation with a survivor or other lawyers or advocates or mental health professionals like yourself will have a conversation where a survivor says, my lawyer said this. And when you unpack that, they're talking about the prosecutor whose job it is to, is to represent the state, the community. Mm -hmm. And it's such a critical job but it's not the job of being the victim's lawyer. So yeah, we were we were really born and and kind of has have grown up to fill this niche in the system uh, so that survivors can have privileged conversations about their rights. They can spend a lot more time trying to understand their rights and we can really when you boil down our mission, like when you get right to the core of it, it's all about the apostrophe in victims' rights. 100% of our mission is about returning that apostrophe, which right in English language and grammar is um, either a contraction, but we're not talking about that, or <laughs> possession, ownership, right? So victims' rights right. with the apostrophe, having your own lawyer helps you be able to deploy your rights if, when, and how you choose. So really, it's all about the apostrophe, um, which no one else in the system can do. Right. I think that's just an incredibly terrific idea. Uh, how does NCVLI decide what cases to get involved in? Or do, do, do people reach out to NCVLI and say, hey, help me? Yes, to both pieces. Okay. Yes and. Right? Okay. A, good, a, good lawyer, <laughs> a good lawyer answer. It's either going to be maybe or a yes to everything. Um, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> maybe it's a yes to, yes to everything. So we um, right, we're grant funded in large part. So we, we have federal grants as well as some state grants that give us um, some emphases, right? So a number of years ago, we had a grant where we were had the privilege of getting to focus on fraud cases. And then sometimes we have cases from the office on or grants from the office on violence against women. So we, we get some foci, right, from from those mm -hmm. funding streams. But in the, in the grander scheme, what happens is we will receive emails or telephone calls from lawyers and advocates across the country saying, I am working with a survivor who needs assistance. Can you either help me help them or can you connect them with a lawyer? Um, we do get some direct contacts from victims. We are not generally a direct representation agency so because we're a limited staff. So we usually try and pair them with one of our pro bono attorneys, which is a no cost attorney, and then we'll work on the case. And then every now and then we will see something happening in the news and we will get involved, usually in that situation more as amicus curiae, which means friend of court. Uh, so we'll just go into the case that way. But we get we get it from pretty much phone calls, emails, people find us on the website, and then professionals refer cases to us. And 
Um, we're always looking for folks to reach out if they see something happening. That's awesome. That's great information. Can you talk about any uh, recent cases or particularly interesting cases that NCBLI has been involved in um, and, and how they got involved in that particular process? Or is that sort of like protected information? No, we absolutely can. I mean, if if I have a client, I can't tell you privileged things, just like a mental <laughs> health pro- a professional couldn't. But big cases, of course, I can. And, you know, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about coming to speak with you. And I was thinking about, you know, which cases? And knowing it's a mass uh, victimization podcast, I was looking mm-hmm. at our mass cases only initially. And then I thought, no, I think it's important for folks to hear why every case impacts victims of mass violence. So I'll give a couple of examples that are some are mass victimization cases and some are seemingly not, but they impact everyone. So one of the mass victimization cases is actually an area that I don't think many people think of when they think of mass victimization, because we often think of um, clear violence, right? Gun violence, Mm -hmm. weaponry. Um, We have worked on numerous environmental crimes cases. Uh Aha. And environmental crimes cases, there is a mass population being impacted. Mm -hmm. So we worked on the WR Grace case, which was a case down in, uh, case up in Texas. And we've worked in some BP petroleum cases down in Texas. And in both of those cases, and you can find out information on our website, which I'll provide at some point, I know. It's a question of who is a victim? So legally, to get your rights, you have to fit the definition of victim. And in mass cases, whether it's gun violence, like the Aurora shooting in Colorado, which we also worked on, or these environmental cases, the starting point is who's a victim because that's who gets to have rights. And that, sadly, is a contested issue in law sometimes. So we got involved in these cases to try to help ensure the broadest definition of victim as possible so that the most members of community impacted could get help. Um, and that's been true, you know, whether it's the environmental case or the gun shooting violence that we've been involved in in Colorado and other places. And then um, another high profile case that folks would be aware of that, again, you might not initially think of as mass violence, but the Jeffrey Epstein case. Okay. There were massive numbers of victims of Jeffrey Epstein and his um, associates. And we've been involved in that case for more than 10 years, uh, working not just on the definition of victim, but working on what does the right to confer with prosecution mean? And how do we ensure that it means something even when you're negotiating charges? Um, so right at the beginning of a case. That's fascinating. When you say the right to confer with prosecution, can you expand on that? Like, what are the questions that are raised in a situation like that? Is the defense going to object and say, hey, you talked to too many potential victims of Jeffrey Epstein? Or what? what's the, the, the situation there? You would absolutely think that might be what would be happening. But no, it is mostly... <laughs> okay. It is, I mean, that could come up, but mostly what happens in a mass case is the prosecutorial team or the investigation team, so sometimes law enforcement, sometimes prosecution, will have identified, right, a number of people impacted by the the violence, again, whether that be uh, weaponry violence or some other violence or some other crime. And they often will then select from a 
amongst that I, group. I, so it's the opposite. Yes, it's usually <laughs> the state or the federal government who's identifying who's going to move forward in the case as a, a quote unquote victim. And they will sometimes leave out big groups of people um, from the criminal case. And if you get left out at various points, then you get denied your rights. So it's really about getting people to qualify as a victim early and maintain that legal status so they get all their rights. I, I would also say the other piece that I think is important is most people, and I'm sure you've heard of plea bargaining, right? Sure, of course. What a lot of folks haven't heard about is what's called charge bargaining, mm -hmm. which is before you even charge a case, you're starting to negotiate what charges would be brought and you're starting to already negotiate what the plea would be so that during charge bargaining, you're basically negotiating the entire resolution of the case before any charges have ever even been brought. Gotcha. And that's when victims need to be involved in mass cases oftentimes, because once you charge, that starts to set kind of the boundaries or the guardrails of the case. Right. And so survivors need to be in the mix. And so conferring with prosecution, even in those early moments, becomes really important. And then, of course, there's all the stuff that happens once charging happens. Um, but those early moments sometimes get forgotten. And if we don't have survivor voice in those early moments, um, we're really erasing a lot of victims. That's fascinating. What a great explanation. I, I appreciate your clarifying that. Uh, and, and it was pretty much the exact opposite of the way I framed it of, uh, you know, too many people being conferred with as opposed to cutting potential victims out of their right to confer. So I, I really appreciate the clarification. I want to note that that happens too, sometimes at the tail end though, right? Because we've seen some mass cases, the Larry Nasser case, where there was concern about too many victims giving victim impact statements. And that objection came more from the defense, right? Right. So it does happen. Anytime we have massive numbers, the system gets a little uneasy, right? What do we do with so many people? And of course, it's totally possible to navigate it. It's just a knee-jerk reaction of the system and system actors. Of course. Fascinating. You, you also had mentioned uh, environmental mass violence. And our center and staff from our center were very involved in helping the community recover and respond to the camp fire out in uh, California uh, a couple years ago. And the exact issue that you raised about who gets to count as being a victim and who gets to have their voices heard uh, in terms of being impacted by the admitted to negligence of the power company out there was uh, an extremely eye-opening conversation to, to hear about. And if folks are interested in learning more about environmental crimes, that we actually have a whole section on our website uh, about those and sort of what the nexus is between those sort of large scale you know, poisoning, fire uh, kinds of uh, food tampering, those kinds of crimes um, and mass violence. It's it's a it's a tricky situation to sort of figure out whether they are or are not a mass violence incident. So I really do appreciate your sharing that. It sounds like your organization has been involved with um, a lot of really important and impactful cases. And we rely on your website a ton. <laughs> <laughs> do you really? That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So 
One of the other things I wanted to ask you about today was I'm learning that the NCVLI is really dedicated to protecting victims' rights during criminal cases. And and I'm wondering, from your perspective, what are the dangers to victims' rights during criminal cases? Uh, How do victims' rights get ignored or shuffled to the side uh, and uh, in, in criminal cases that we need to be aware of? Yeah, I know we only have a short period of time together. <laughs> this is a big question. Um, you know, it's, I'm going to, I'll give a specific example in one moment, but I want us to just pause for a second because I think even those of us who are involved in system, we sometimes, meaning criminal justice system or, or civil justice system, we sometimes think, well, oh, everyone will pay attention to the victim. But if you pause and think about culturally, um, how our system works, we can do a a micro exercise, which is if everyone listening to this would just like close their eyes or at least envision the criminal courtroom for a second and the architecture of a criminal courtroom. And if I asked everyone and they could answer, you know, who sits up front, kind of a little elevated, everyone would picture the judge. Who sits at a table? Who sits at the other table? Or is there another table? Everyone would get to prosecution and defense, and then we could get to the jury. We could get to the witness stand, right? Everyone can visualize it. And then you ask, where's the dedicated seat for the victim? Silence. And so literally architecturally, which isn't a minor moment when you're thinking about culture, right? Our architecture starts to tell us a lot about what we value and how something's going to work. Architecturally, our criminal legal system, our criminal justice system, doesn't have a spot anymore for the victims. Now, historically, they actually were in the seat where the prosecutor was. There wasn't a prosecutor, historically. Um, And so as the public prosecutor moved into that seat, the victim kept moving further and further back in the courtroom, became a witness or a piece of evidence. So victims' rights were supposed to re-engender the victim with some power and system to have some voice. Well, So where are the specific risks? Well, we forget to notify victims. We'll set court dates and we'll confer with the prosecution, the judge and the defense about what's the best day for a hearing. And then we'll set it and then we'll maybe tell the victim, but we haven't checked in on their schedule. Is it gonna work? They have a right to be present at almost every hearing, but have we thought about them? Um, Sometimes that notice comes in a language they can't access. Sometimes it comes in font they can't read because they they have visual challenges. Sometimes it comes 24 hours before a hearing and they can't arrange for daycare, time off work, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So notice is a fundamental challenge in our system because we don't honor it. We still think of victims as evidentiary moments in a case, as sidekicks in the case. And then we have the victims' rights that started to be passed in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right, as we kept improving them, have other procedural rights. Notice is one, then there's presence and the right to be heard. And we very rarely open up space for a survivor to be heard except at sentencing, Mm -hmm. even though the law says they have the right to be heard at various other times. So, you know, when are their rights at risk? It's pretty much at every moment. And that's really why, sadly, I think they do still need lawyers right now. I I mean, I'm hoping before I retire or leave this 
this planet um, um, and my life ends that they won't need lawyers because culturally our system will have adjusted. But for now, they need a lawyer who gets to say, stop this proceeding. Where's the victim? What a great answer. I, I, I think that thought experiment was terrific. And your sort of explanation of the ways in which, uh, I mean, we've all seen police procedurals on TV or in movies and things like that and, and, and prosecutorial, you know, courtroom dramas and so forth. And, and, you know, some of them feature victims, but even in those it's, you know, who's the hero, the hero is the attorney, um, the prosecutor, or, or depending on the perspective, you know, the defense attorney, it's, it's a very interesting sort of cultural phenomenon that you're describing there. Uh, you, you know, you reference the architecture and, and sort of the layout of the courtroom. I, I haven't really thought about that before. That's really fascinating. I would love for there to be an actual television drama that really gets, or, or write a day in the life kind of, you know, medium of some sort that really captures what survivors navigate. That would be just so eye-opening in a sad way, I think, for for our I country, so but it would also assist us in thinking forward a little bit better about how do we humanely treat people who've been harmed by crime, just as we are, you know, rightfully so trying to figure out how do we more humanely treat people who are accused of crime. I'm very grateful we're having that deep conversation now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to have that deep conversation about those harmed by crime uh, as well if we're, if we're ever going to have a more healed community. Is there something that crime victims who are in the criminal justice system right now, their cases are, are either about to start or underway. Is there something that those individuals or, or groups can do to protect their rights? Uh, things that they should take on for themselves or uh, actions that, that they should take in order to assert their own rights? That is a great question. And I'm going to do another thought experiment, um, stealing your vocabulary, just for your audience for a second, which is something that all of us need to be doing is this. If you walk down the street, and so I'm going to pretend anyone listening is just kind of someone on the street, anywhere in this country, and if someone has access to the English language in a relatively high way, right? Like I'm not talking about folks who have challenges with the English Um, and they have access to popular culture. If I ask them this question, you have been detained by police, fill fill in the blank for me. You have the right to, they're gonna answer, right? Yes, absolutely. What are they gonna say? They're gonna say, you have the right to remain Remain silent. silent. You have the right to have an attorney. Absolutely, if you can't afford one, one will be provided for you, yeah. Exactly, almost everyone domestically, right, who has been in this country for a period of time, who has access to the English language and to medium, right, will be able to fill that in. Not because they've been arrested, but because culturally we have infused it. I mean, I know where I first started seeing that. I mean, I can, you know, it was a TV show, uh, Dragnet. That's how old I am. Dragnet. I I was just going to say, it it ends up becoming an age test. Yes. Right? You ask people (laughs) what show and you start to know their ages. Mine was Barney Miller. Okay. Um, There you go. (laughs) Clearly, I'm older than you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I needed to slip that in. All I needed right. to slip that in. So you so what can folks do even before their case is in the system? We all need to be able to fill in the blank of if you are a victim of crime, you have the right to. 
which means we have to start by knowing our rights, knowing them for ourselves, for our families, for our community members, even before crisis hits. Um, so that's the starting point. If you're already in the system, having um, an advocate or an attorney who is willing to and able to sit with you and go through your rights with you in a very deep way and ask you, what, do you understand this right? Let's talk about what it can mean for you and then how do you want to exercise it or do you want to exercise it? Because just like with defendants' rights, there's this expression in law that you know a defendant has to knowingly and voluntarily waive their right. We can't just take their right away. Mm -hmm. They have to knowingly, so it means understand it deeply, and then voluntarily, meaning with no coercion, no external pressure, waive a right. That's the way we need to start treating victims' rights. So for a victim in the system or a family in the system, um, they need to know their rights. They need to have an advocate and an attorney who, who has no other obligations, meaning not a system actor, who will sit with them and explain their rights and, and talk with them about how they want to exercise them. And so how do we get there? There are some legal clinics in the country that will at no cost provide legal services, and we partner with those. So you can find some information on our website about getting paired with a, a lawyer. If there isn't someone in your jurisdiction, but you can find a lawyer who's willing to learn and CBLA helps lawyers learn this stuff. And if you have a really good prosecutor prosecution based team, we'll, we'll actually coach the prosecution team too. But the ideal, the gold standard is to have an independent advocate and attorney. So, I mean, this, it's all so interesting. It ties into an upcoming uh, product that we have. You sort of already answered in part my next question, um, which which is semi a plug for a forthcoming NMVVRC product as well that we're also going to have a, a specific podcast dedicated to. We at the NMVVRC and the South Carolina U.S. Attorney's Office are about to release a planning and implementation guide for comprehensive coordinated victim assistance for mass violence incident trials. That's the title. I didn't. Just, I can't just riff that off. Um, and it focuses a lot on the rights of the victims in mass violence. And I was gonna say, we're trying to target this publication primarily at victim advocates, victim service professionals and the like. Do you, I mean, you you talked about lawyers uh, getting involved and helping explain rights. Do you see a similar uh, role for victim service professionals? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so excited for your new product because it is absolutely critical that we that every person with whom a survivor comes in contact understands rights, what they mean in the system, and how you can ask for them. Every single one of us, because as you well know, a survivor might not be able to hear it from one person for any number of reasons because of where they are in their stage of trauma, because of their affinity or lack of affinity for, for the person with whom they're speaking at a time, right? So all of us need to know all of this. You don't have to be the expert in actualizing it, but you have to be an expert at knowing it so you can pass along information and, and make connections. Gotcha. I have a couple more questions for you. Um, we've talked a little bit about the roles of attorneys and, and to some extent, prosecutors and defense attorneys, but I, there's another party in the courtroom. And I just wondered if... Uh, 
NC uh, VLI actually does work with judges and, and are there things that judges need to do differently to ensure that uh, in their courtrooms, victims' rights get protected? Yes, yes and yes. There's so okay. much they have to do. <laughs> courts, you know, courts are the backstop of all rights, right? Whether it's an accused person's right or a victim's right. And what I mean by backstop is they're not, they're the ones that are supposed to not let things move forward if anyone's rights aren't being protected. And so judges, most of whom are based on you saying dragnet, me saying um, Bernie Miller, are our age or older, right? Many judges yep. at least, which means many of them came on the bench before victims' rights were really um, either law at all or be while they were just still new law. And then even the slightly newer judges, younger judges, they have come on before victims' rights have been enforced in court, right? The Federal Crime Victims' Rights Act only became law in 2004, and only the first appellate case was 2006 and very few for the first few years. So it's really new law. So judges need to get educated on victims' rights. And do does NCVLI work with them on that? Absolutely. That said, judges need to invite external expertise to train them more often. It's very hard to get on a judicial training calendar if you don't have a personal connection. And our judiciary needs to invite external experts to help them understand evolving law. And so there's that, get trained. Then in practicality, what can they do? It's super simple. Um, just as they do colloquies, meaning conversation on the record with the defendant about, do you understand this right? Are you willing to waive this right? Do you want to you know, go forward? Colloquies on the record about rights they do them every day in court. Mm -hmm. Let's start doing colloquies on the record with victims. And let's start not accepting plea bargains. Like let's change our judicial form. And right now, it, you know, you check boxes. Every, every court has this plea form and you check boxes. Did the defendant waive their rights? Do they understand? And then the judge signs. Add a box, add a box that says, were the victims notified of this plea hearing? Were they present? Did we hear from them? Check, check, check. <laughs> like it's not that it's does really sound not pretty simple things. it's word processing on on some level right i mean that absolutely that, yeah. and by law in most jurisdictions courts actually have a duty to ensure rights are protected it's explicit in the federal crime victims rights act but it exists in almost every state also and so this is actually a duty of the court and they need to get educated and then put in place some very simple pieces and then they can move on to more things. Like how do you be even more trauma informed and get that training? But there's some basic steps courts can take now. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you. Um, so you, you've referred a couple times to different kinds of uh, trainings and so forth. Um, what kinds, like is, is there a menu? What, what kinds of trainings do you most often do? Which kind of trainings do you wish you got asked to do more? To, to sort of spread the word? I love that question though. Which ones do you want? We would love to be asked to train with judges more um, okay. or for judges more. That That is a critical moment. Um, and the other critical moment is get asked to train at other law schools more, law students, right? So the bookends of law lawyering, right? The judiciary and the law students, those are two really important places. Who do we train the most and what do we do the most? We do practical skills, hands-on training for advocates and attorneys. So scenario-based training. So we'll start with passing along the knowledge of what are the rights, 
you know, what has the law told us they can mean? And then we'll do scenario-based training about how can you make these meaningful for the survivor client with whom you're working. Uh, and we'll do those in person or virtually. Um, we, we use a lot of interactive online training platforms um, to make it work for whoever we're training. And then in the last probably five years, we've really started working more and more with law enforcement to train them to uh, communicate about victims' rights early in the case in a trauma-informed way. Um, so we're doing that more and more and, and would love to keep building that. But the primary area we train are advocates and attorneys um, all across the country, from prosecutors to civil lawyers to pro bono lawyers, um, any, anyone in that mix. We are happy to train groups as small as two and three, all the way up to, uh, we did a training recently of a thousand people. A thousand. Wow. I thought you were going to say a hundred and I was going to be impressed by that, but a thousand is crazy. Wow. Le less practical skills when you're at the thousand sure, mark, more knowledge sure. based, but yeah. Can't, can't do a lot of supervising of, of practice conversations uh, with a thousand <laughs> participants for sure. Exactly. But, okay. So if, uh, if someone wants to learn more about the NCBLI or consult your group while their case is pending, how can they how can they find you? How can they reach out and learn more about you? Sure. So our website is our acronym.org. So ncvli.org. Um, and on there under professional resources, um, A, we have a victim law library. So you can find a ton of our writing on things. Um, which you might be feel intimidated by because it's victim law library, but the text of the articles is written for non-lawyers, and awesome. the footnotes those are the things written for the lawyers. <laughs> so <laughs> you can you can read the body of any of our publications, and that's really designed um, to be accessible beyond lawyers. And then the footnotes are to prove to the lawyers we know what we're talking about. That's pretty clever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then you can ask for trainings on there. So we have a training request form. You can ask for technical assistance. So if a case is ongoing, you can ask for technical assistance. And we receive those. Our entire legal team that's assigned to TA gets pinged, meaning we all get the request at the same time. So if there is an urgent deadline, someone will get back to you very quickly. Again, I want to note, we aren't a direct representation agency. Mm -hmm. So if a survivor contacts us, we really have to find someone to work directly with them and then we'll support and so I wouldn't encourage survivors to use those forms. Um, instead, get to a local nonprofit, have that, or, or your prosecutor contact us, and then we'll help. That's great. That's great. Any, any last thoughts or sort of final messages you, you want to leave the audience with, Meg? So I, I think I noted earlier, right, like the starting point is know your rights. Mm -hmm. the, the next step in all of this is to ask for your rights. Right. Ask for your rights in court. Ask for your rights along the way. And so I think anyone listening to this, start by knowing the rights and then really start to pivot to be, how do I ask for rights in the court? How do I assert them in court? How do I demand the system treat survivors better? And on our website, starting in 2022, we're going to have an ask for rights campaign that's going to explain in more detail how each of us can help survivors ask for their rights in the legal system. So check back often in 2022. Fantastic. Um, I, I have found this to be such a sort of a perspective expanding conversation and so fascinating. I'm, I've, I haven't ever done this before, uh, I don't think, um, but I'm, I'm going to just sort of float the idea of having another conversation with you on the podcast sometime in the future. Would you be willing to come back and and uh, talk to us some more about some of the stuff you guys are doing and, and uh, 
if you have any other thought experiments to sort of blow our minds, uh, I, I think that would be great as well. I would love to. You you all do such amazing work. I would love to be part of the conversation any way I or NCBLI can. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much for being here and, and, and sharing your wisdom and insight into how to protect victims' rights in mass violence cases specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, but even more broadly in, in criminal cases. I think it's information that most of our listeners don't know about and, and really will benefit from. So thank you very much. Thank you. This has been another episode of the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. Thanks for listening.